And let's pray before we open the word together this evening. How great thou art, our God, and how small we are. Forgive us that so often we are filled with hubris and pride in thinking that we have had all the thoughts of you that we can have. There is nothing more to learn. We have comprehended you with our finite minds, you, the infinite God. And you are so great that you are beyond our comprehension, that you dwell in light inaccessible. That your thoughts are not like our thoughts, and your ways are not like our ways. Forgive us that so often put you under the microscope as if you are something that we can dissect, we can inhibit, and that we can put boundaries around. And we would ask for your help this evening that you would free our minds from the traps that we have placed them in, from those that our adversary would seek to erect that we would find that there are new categories and there are new thoughts, that those new thoughts lead to new delights, and that we comprehend You, our God, in a new way that stirs our souls in a way we haven't experienced before. And would You lead us forth evermore in Continual, greater a sense of knowledge of You and experience of You as we go through our hours and our days and our weeks and our years and even our decades. And even as we go into eternity and dwell before Your face day after day forever, would You give us greater heights of You, greater heights of the knowledge of You. We would truly rather be a doorkeeper in your house, O Lord, than dwell in the tents of wickedness. We'd be able to say that we know our God. Reveal yourself this evening, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. And Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they asked me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. <clears throat> Last week, we began a series here on our triune God as we've 
said last week, this is a little different for us. We aren't going through book, a book of the Bible. We aren't even necessarily doing an expository sermon from the Scriptures here during this sermon series. What I want to do in each of these sermons is just look at a text together briefly and then use that text as a way to then exegete a doctrine, if you will, to bring a doctrine to light uh, of our triune God and to look at our God in light of that Scripture and then working out that doctrine together. Last week, you'd say, well, we began this series on our triune God and we didn't even speak about the Trinity. Well, you'd be right and you'd be wrong. Uh, we didn't mention the Trinity last week. Remember last week we looked at the knowledge of God. How do we know anything that we know about God? How, how can we use vocabulary in speaking about God? And what is it that we truly know and what is it that we don't know about God? And so we looked at that last week. This week I want to look at what we call the simplicity of God. We can't speak about our triune God apart from speaking about His simplicity. I remember the first time that I heard someone say that God is a simple God and every hair stood up on the back of my neck and I thought, you aren't talking about my God. My God's not simple, but He is. God is a simple God. Simple meaning that God is one and that He is not made of parts as the Westminster Confession of Faith says. He does not have parts. Scott Swain, a Trinitarian theologian, says it this way. He said, God's unity of simplicity means that God is one with Himself, self-same and indivisible in His being and operations, and God is not composed of parts. God is pure God, and nothing but God is God. When we think of Trinity, or when we think of a tri our triune God, our minds immediately run to the three. But you can't run to the three without running to the one. And so I want to start with that this evening. Maybe we should begin in thinking about the names of God. As I said in last week's sermon, and we'll say throughout this series... This is a less, less than an expository series. We're just looking at these brief texts. And what I want to do is look at this text of Exodus 3.14 as kind of the, the launching platform with us. You and I know God as He has revealed Himself to us and as He has revealed Himself to us in different ways. Primarily, we know Him in two ways. There are two primary ways that we know Him. First, we know Him by His works. For example, we know God by His work of creation. Paul will say in Romans 1 that the things about God have been made clearly known, His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature by what we see in creation. Whereas the psalmist says, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim His handiwork. We know God through His works, creation, salvation, consummation. Second, we come to see and know God through His names. His names by which He reveals to us through Scripture. 
the names of God throughout Scripture. They provide insights into who He is. And within this category of names, we have what I would like to call two subcategories of names. We have His names of relation, and we have His names of being. His names of relation and His names of being. Let's think about the names of relation first. To make it even more complex, we have this category of names, then we have these names of relation, we have these names of being as subcategories, but underneath this names of relations, it gets even more complex. We have two more subcategories. We have names of relation in the Trinity, and we have names of relation outside the Trinity. So we have his names of relation, what we would say theologically ad intra, within, and we have his names that are ad extra, without. So ad intra, within the Godhead, we have the Father and the Son. We'll discuss this a little later this evening. Outside of the Godhead, we have the names of relation like Creator, Redeemer, Lord. Does all speak of his relationship to things outside of himself, and they tell us something about him. His names of being include God, or especially what we find here in Exodus 3. And it is there that we have, I think, one of the most, and everybody would think, one of the most important divine names, this name of being. When Moses is called by God to go down to Egypt and to set his people free from slavery, Moses will be with God there, and Moses is reluctant. He's reluctant to go down to Egypt for multiple reasons. One, he knows his own frailty, he knows his own weakness, but especially, he says, he is afraid to go down because he says, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, Notice the name of relation there, God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Now what's interesting is that God doesn't fix upon himself a name like all of the pagan deities around the nations of Israel would have fixed a name to their gods. He doesn't do that. The name that he gives Moses is this. He says, I am who I am. I am. Now, there are a number of things that we could observe about the divine name of being that God gives. Yahweh, Jehovah, I am. Yahweh, Jehovah are just the ways of saying that name. I am who I am. First, notice it speaks of His existence. It speaks of His existence. God by nature exists. That's untrue of everything else. Everything. Whether you and I are talking about animate objects or whether we're talking about inanimate objects. If we're talking about animate objects like people or grasshoppers or inanimate objects like rocks or suns or stars, they don't always exist. They aren't just is, but God is. Or if we're speaking about ideas or time or even light, God by nature exists. He simply is. He's not becoming. He has not become. He simply is, and He always is. 
Second, notice that God does not give Himself a proper name. Proper names are used to identify one from a larger category of many. We name each of our children so that we can distinguish them from one another. They're one of a larger category of our children. We do the same with our dogs, or we do the same with our vocations, or trees, or universities. This is Michigan State University. We give it that proper name to distinguish it from other names we won't mention universities in this state. Distinguishes it. As we said last week, God does not belong to a greater genus. There is not some category of God. And so He doesn't need a proper name. He just is. Third, notice that He does not compare Himself to anything but Himself. He is eternally in Himself all that He will be and all that He can be. He is one with Himself. He does not mention Himself as made up of things or identified by things. He simply is. God is pure God. There's nothing else. He's just God. Finally, In many ways, this is the most important name of God in the Scriptures because it alone is the name, as Richard Mueller, a modern-day Reformed theologian, said. That is, it's a name that's not derived from effects. It's the only name that's not derived from effects. Nothing comes together to form this name. Nothing defines it. This is a name that in many ways is beyond every thought that we can have. It's, It's immeasurable. I am who I am. Now try and wrap your mind around that, God is saying. It just goes and it goes and it goes and it goes. Our first point this evening, the simplicity of our triune God means He is without parts. The simplicity of our triune God means He is without parts. As he said, he just is. And he has always existed as he is. It wasn't a time that he wasn't or that things came together to make him. He just is. If we say that God is somehow made up of parts that came together, then those parts would need to predate God in some way. That to form a composition, a composite that we now call God. But the highest form of being, of unity, is one that is not composite. All that is composite is created. But He is one that has always been. He always is and He always will be. In Deuteronomy 6, that great text, what we call the great Shema, it becomes the principal text of the Jewish nation, and it is a key and essential text for us as Christians. What does God say to them? I, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. He's one. He's not many gods, and He's not made up of many parts. He's just one. 
This means that when you and I, when we speak of the attributes of God, we are speaking, we're not speaking of different things within God. He has no parts. His attributes cannot be separated from His essence, who He is. But we often think that way and we talk that way. We will say, well, God is love and God is good and God is merciful. And we will compare and we will contrast those things as if they are different things within God Himself, that they are parts of Him. But they aren't. He's one. We have parts. We have accidental parts. I have a right arm and I have a left arm. You could, if you wanted to, because I'm made up of accidental parts, that is, things that you can give and things that you can take away, you could cut off my left arm and I would still be. I didn't cease to be because I lost my left arm. You can... It can be here or it could not be here, and I'm still here. We could do that with more complexity when we speak about our attributes as separate from ourselves. You say, well, Pastor Kevin, he's a good man. He's good. But then maybe he leaves tonight and he goes and he robs a convenience store down the street and he knocks over an old lady on his way home. And we would say, he's no longer good. But he still is. He's still Kevin Phipps. He just lost that goodness. God is not made up of parts that one can be taken away and one added. He just is. You can't parcel these things out with Him. Why? Because it's not only that He is good. He is goodness itself. God is His attributes. In a very real sense, He doesn't possess anything. He is those things. I am who I am. For example, we say that God lives, which is very true. He is a living being, but we must understand that He is also life itself. We can't distinguish between His living and His life. What's the danger in, in thinking as if God's attributes or that God has different parts that make up His whole? What's the danger of that? Well, we've inferred a number of them, but I want to give you at least three more. First, if God is composed of parts or different attributes or potentiality or actuality, then He's not perfect. He ceases to be perfect. If He is simply a being that loves, but love itself is a different thing, then He cannot be the highest love. Know that there's a category of the thing called love that God can somehow ascertain to, God can somehow be, but then there is this thing, love. And that makes Him in some way imperfect. There's nothing above Him. He is love. He is goodness. He is mercy. He is righteousness. He is holiness. All that He is, He is. Second, if God is composed of parts, 
then at some point his parts might be vulnerable to being lost. He's destructible. But God is indivisible. He's a unitary being. He is himself. There's that old question that used to be bantered around, especially during the Middle Ages, where they would ask, is something good because God wills it to be good? Or does God will something because it is good? Is something good because God wills it to be good? Or does God will something because it is good? It, it would seem like that's an unanswerable question. You run into a problem either way, it seems. If you say that it's good because God wills it, then it sounds like God is somehow arbitrary. He just determines what's good, and so that's what makes it good. However, if God wills something because it is good, then God is dictated to by something that is greater than Him, goodness. And that goodness tells Him what is good. And so it seems like it's a conundrum. Yeah, what do you, what do, you do with this? Well, the doctrine of the simplicity of God answers it. God is good. He is goodness Himself. And all that is good is but a reflection or a shadow of His true nature. As Matthew Barrett, a Reformed Baptist theologian, said, we could do this with any attribute. Let's do it with truth. God does not bow to some external norm for truth, nor does He invent truth out of nothing. God is truthfulness, truthfulness itself. All truth is truth because it mimics the very nature of God who is truth. Third, if God is composed of parts, then one of His parts could be more significant than another one of His parts. It could be greater in some way, and that would make for an awful God. Imagine we were to say that, well, our God is good, but you know what? He is also powerful, and there are times that His power is greater than His goodness. What an awful God that would be. Or if you switched it and said, oh, our God is good and he's, He is powerful, but sometimes His goodness is greater than His power. What an awful God that would be. You wouldn't know what you could trust and when you could trust Him. If there are parts, and there can be greater and there can be lesser because there are parts. We have to ask then, are we wrong to speak about the attributes of God as separate things? It lends itself to thinking God is made up of parts, no doubt, to talk of His attributes. Thomas Aquinas gives a firm no to this. He says this when speaking about the attributes of God. It's a little complex, but I want to work it out with you. He says this, perfections pre-exist in God unitedly and simply. Whereas in creatures they are received, divided, and multiplied. He says the divine attributes all signify the one thing, namely God, but they signify Him under diverse and multiple concepts which are not synonymous. So let's try and, ah, okay, Aquinas, let's try and wrap our minds around what this medieval theologian was saying. 
when we ascribe to God the things that He has revealed to us about Himself, they are true. So when we say that He is love and that He is loving, it is true. When we say that He is merciful, it is true. When we say that He is good, all of that is true. Each of the attributes we have spoken of God about are true about God. They truly mark God. But these attributes are not real distinctions in God. That is what Aquinas is telling us because he doesn't have parts. That is, you can't separate out the holiness of God from the goodness of God or from the righteousness of God within God Himself. But he also points, he's saying they're all one. It's one in God. But he's also pointing out that these terms are not synonymous that we use, though. We all know that there's a difference between God is power and God is good. That God is merciful and that God is just. We, we know that these are not synonymous terms. Aquinas is telling us that we use these various terms to describe God in various and numerous ways because we need these various terms. There's no way for you and I to say something that is true of God without using all of these various terms. Maybe a way to think about this is think about it like a diamond Diamond has many different facets. I'm told if you cut a diamond, and a normal diamond cut, it has 58 facets, those flat surfaces that are on the diamond face. And if you look at a diamond then, it is all of those different facets that are coming together that show the brilliance of that diamond to you. You're, you're looking through all of those different facets, all of those different faces on the diamond, and by doing that, that's what brings out the brilliance of that one diamond. That's a poor analogy because God doesn't have many facets. Maybe we could, maybe a better illustration is if we took a prism. And there is one light that goes through a prism. And what happens when it goes through that prism? Well, as it goes through the prism, that one ray of light, then it is diffused or it's refracted through that prism and it will create a spectrum of colors. You'll have red and orange and yellow and green and blue and purple. I learned that in kindergarten right there from the prism. But it's just one beam of light that's refracted and you see all of this. Again, not a perfect illustration, but we use all of these different terms to speak of what in God Himself is just Him, not parts. But all this talk of simplicity leads to the money question, doesn't it? The question that goes to our heads. What of the Trinity then? And here's our second point. Though God is simple, this does not destroy the distinction between the persons and the Godhead. Though God is simple, this does not destroy the distinctions between the persons and the Godhead. There are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You just confessed that as we did the catechism together. We believe that. That is how God has revealed Himself to us. One essence, three persons. 
We can make the mistake of thinking about our triune God as being three persons who come together to form one God. Many view the Trinity like this, that each is a third of God, and each as a third of God make up this one God. No, that's horrific. That's not who He is. He's one. He's not made up of parts. Neither did the three persons emerge from the one God. It's not as if there's a category of God or there is the essence of God, and then you have these persons of God that emanate or somehow fall from this one God. No, that is an abomination. There is one God. Each person of the Godhead is fully God. He's not part God. The Son is God. The Father is God. The Holy Spirit is God. Not a part of God, but God. And yet, neither do we have three gods. There are not multiple gods. There are not multiple wills. There are not multiple minds. There are not multiple powers. He does not have parts. God is one simple being. As Francis Turretin said, simplicity in respect to essence, but trinity in respect to persons. So let's work that out a little bit. There's distinction between the three persons, <laughs> but that distinction does not undermine the one essence. Each person is fully God. And each person is fully God and identical with the one God. Or, if we could say it another way, each person in the triune Godhead is identical with God in all His fullness. So that when you see the Son, you can say, I have seen God. Not part of God. Not a portion of God. You've seen God. When we speak about we are the temple of God with the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, it is the Spirit that indwells us. It is not part of God that indwells us. It is God who indwells us. As a person, we can't say that I and, my, my, that I and myself or you and yourself are, for example, humanity. We're each individual manifestations of humanity. We're not humanity itself. Or you think of those billboards that Michigan State used to do. I don't know if they still do, but around town where they would have a picture of one student on the billboard and it would say underneath it, I am MSU. Really? You're not MSU. Now, you're a part of MSU. We're driving down Grand River, and you see a student with their Michigan State gear on, and they're all dressed in green, and they're walking down the street. Nobody points at them and goes, there is MSU. No, MSU is made up of students. It's made up of faculty. It's made up of staff. It's made up of books. It's made up of land. It's made up of football. It's made up of the MSU dairy store. There's a lot of things that make up MSU. But the three persons, they don't belong to a larger category of God. They don't make up God. There's no parts. They aren't 
distinct minds in God or distinct wills in God. They don't have distinct desires in God. They are one. And each person is fully God. Each person in the triune Godhead is identical with God in all His fullness. I am the Lord your God. I am one. One. Then what is the distinction? What's the distinction then between the persons? Because we still speak of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. What's the distinction? Three persons do not differ from one another because they have different attributes. It's often what you hear. People say, oh, the Son is loving, the Father is just. No. It's not because they have different attributes. It's not because they have varying degrees of attributes. No. The Son is not somehow more loving than the Father. They're one. Then what's the distinction? The distinction is simply this. The Father is not the Son. And the Father is not the Spirit. And the Son is not the Father. And the Son is not the Spirit. And the Spirit is not the Son. And the Spirit is not the Father. The only distinction is in their relationship with one another. It's a relational distinction. The Father begets, the Son is begotten, and the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. That is the distinction. It is intra-Trinitarian. Their relationship with one another. The Father begets, the Son is begotten, and the Spirit proceeds. That's the distinction. One God. A simple God. A God without parts. Applications. First application. We are always to keep in mind that our God is one in three persons. We're always to keep this in mind. Gregory of Nazianzus, who was a 4th century Eastern church father, uh, I think he has said it better than any other in the history of the church when he was thinking upon this. He said this, he said, No sooner do I conceive of the one than I am illumined by the splendor of the three. No sooner do I distinguish them than I am carried back to the one. When I think of any one of the three, I think of him as a whole, and my eyes are filled. And the greater part of what I am, thinking escapes me. I cannot grasp the greatness of that one so as to attribute to a greater greatness to the rest. When I contemplate the three together, I see but one torch and cannot divide or measure out the undivided light. That is, he's saying, when our minds run to the three, what should happen is immediately when we are thinking of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, as a Christian, what should immediately happen is that we find our mind running right back to the one, one God. And when we find ourselves thinking about the one God, then our mind immediately, as we're thinking about the one God, we immediately run back to the three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this is thinking Christianly about your God. Second, understand this is difficult, and so many will say, well, I just believe in God. 
or I just believe in Christ. Simplicity of our triune God doesn't seem so simple. Trinity is too complex. We can't wrap our minds around it, so why try? Well, second, because we are to worship and honor God as He is. We are to worship Him as He is. If we don't seek and honor and worship God as a triune God, then we don't seek and honor and worship the true living God. John, in his gospel, writes this. He talks about why he was writing his gospel, and he writes this. He says, he wrote his gospel so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you might have life in His name, John 20. See what John's saying? I wrote so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, but you must believe that Jesus the Christ is the Son of God. You can't just believe Jesus. If you believe in Jesus, that leads you to worshiping and honoring a triune God. You see that He is the Son of the Father. That's why I wrote this gospel. You must worship God as He is. Not as you want Him to be. Not what makes it easy for our little finite minds, but as He is. And as He's revealed Himself to us. John Calvin made this clear when he spoke about the fact that we must consider God as Father, Son, Holy Spirit. If we don't, Calvin said... Quote, only the bare and empty name of God flits about in our brains to the exclusion of the true God. It's a false God. That's Calvin's point. You cannot simply have Jesus. You must have the triune God. Third, you can trust this God because He's simple. You can trust Him because He's simple. I was asking my kids on the drive here tonight, what do you think it means that God is simple? And so I was letting them kind of work it out in the car. And uh, One of them said, well, it means that he's not complex. I said, well, I think there's truth to that, though he is complex. I said, what do you mean by not complex? And one of them said, well, I guess it means that, and they used the word, he doesn't have parts. I said, yeah, that's exactly right. And I said, why do you think that would be a blessing? And one of them rightly said, well, like a car, it always breaks because it has a lot of parts. Yeah, that's right. It's hard for me to trust cars. Because I got a lot of parts. You can trust God. He doesn't have parts. He's simple. This was the great lie in the Garden of Eden is that the serpent comes to Adam and Eve and this is what Satan is sowing in the mind of Eve. Your God is much more complex than you think. He says that He's operating for your goodness. He says that He's made you promises to be good to you. But you know what? He's got a secret agenda He hasn't let you know about. He has two wills. He's revealed to you one will, but He's got another that He's hiding from you. He's keeping from you. No. God's simple. As He has revealed Himself, so He is. He's good. 
There can't be any lie in him. He's true. There can't be any falsehood in him. There's no divided heart. He cannot be a deceiver. When James speaks of God, he says God is light and in Him there is no darkness. We could do that with any single attribute of God. He's good and in Him is no evil. He's truth and in Him is no lie. He's wise and in Him there is no foolishness. He is holy and in Him is no evil. That's a God you can trust. He's simple. He is as He tells you He is. There's no complexity here, no composition here, just what he is. Fourth, two more, fourth, the simplicity of God leads us to recognize the imperfections in creatures as all creatures are made up of parts. It's so silly for you and I to trust created things. They're all made up of parts, which means that they can all deteriorate, they can all fail, they can all mess things up. Richard Baxter, the famous Puritan, said this about the fact that creatures are all created things made up of parts. He said, this should help to alienate us from them. That is, human knowledge, he says, is mixed with much ignorance, humility with pride, love with selfishness, but in God is none of all of this mixture, but pure uncompounded good. And he says the Christian learns to leave the compounded, self-contradicting creatures and adhere to the pure, simple God. Just adhere yourself to Him. Why would you look anywhere else? Finally, I want you to see the implication for our lives that God is simple, that He's one. It's interesting to me in the great Shema text in Deuteronomy 6 uh, that there is an indicative and then there is an imperative that is tied to it there in the text. He will begin with an imperative where God says to them, Hear, listen, Israel. And then he gives them the indicative, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. That's the indicative. He then gives them a, an imperative in light of that indicative. Here's the truth. I'm one. Do you remember what the imperative is that flows out of that? Jesus will quote it in all of the Gospels. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, and all your mind, and all your strength. What's he doing? He's showing us that we are composite beings. And he's a simple being. And he's saying you're to take every part that you are, and you're to conform it to me. All your disparate parts, are to come together in holy worship of me. Because there is nothing more beautiful than a simplified God. That's the response. And it's fascinating. 
seems to me that this great unity that is called for in response to this simple God we will finally experience in glory and we're to be aimed at seeing it more and more in our lives and in our persons and our corporate life together and that when he returns upon the clouds and all things are set right what happens all of these disparate parts all of these little compounded things in the created order they all come together and what do they do they sing with one voice and one heart and one soul, and have one will to the glory of the one God. Everything unified under Him. And that's how it must be. Because He is. He is. I owe my kids a lot of dollars. I tell them I have to pay them a dollar if I don't ask their permission, but before I use them as an illustration sermon, I've already done it twice tonight. Uh, but one of them said on the drive here when we were talking about this, said, Dad, that blows everything in my mind. Yeah. A simple God would do that. Let's pray. Father, and O Jesus Christ, the Son, and O Spirit, we give you praise, our one triune God. We give you praise that you are one, and yet you are a God who has revealed yourself to us in ways that we can comprehend, where we can multiply terms and names and look at the effects in this created realm we can have some semblance of who you are and what a gift that is. May it be our lifelong pursuit to know you more and more fully, that we might treasure you more dearly. Oh, forgive us if we have sat here this evening and we have not worshipped. Forgive us if this has just been theologizing. May that never be. As we said last week, Lord, we want all theology to lead to doxology. Truly, we are never talking about you unless we are led to doxology. And so forgive us if that has not been happening in our minds and hearts tonight. And as we go home and as we lay upon our beds, we pray that you would lead us into worship of you. For you are truly worthy. In Christ's holy name, amen.